Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. We are talking this evening about Yahweh's supremacy, Psalm 139, and uh, Lord willing, next week we'll end and close out the Psalm series uh, with Psalm 150, the very last one. So that'll be kind of the game plan, and then from there we'll, we're going to talk about a series called Life Together, and looking forward to that, certainly. Psalm 139 is our text. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 139, verse 1, these are the words of our great and holy God. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark for you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance and your book, all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of bloodshed, depart from me, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do I not revile those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Christ Jesus, the bread of heaven, and amen. You can be seated. The passage before us, a psalm written by David for the choir director, is, like Psalm 137, somewhat shocking to modern readers. In the end of chapter 37, there's this language about dashing little ones against the rocks, and uh, certainly it's an apologetic moment for us, usually in trying to defend such things. But it is a shock to modern readers. In fact, um, many people, especially those in the pro-life camp, will often refer to verses 13 to 16 as a proof text against abortion, which is true. It is a great proof text against abortion, but they stop reading 
uh, and they never get around to verses 19 through 22, which deals with the pro-aborts. <laughs> so I don't know why we stop reading. I guess it seems a bit too, too offensive. Now, this text is one of the most personal sections in all of Holy Scripture, but asking God to slay the wicked, hating them with a perfect hatred, that seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? This sort of knee-jerk reaction, however, fails to account for the totality of the psalm, and skipping over this section is a failure to connect the first part of the psalm with the last part of the psalm. So if you just want to chop that off and leave it away and never get around to dealing with this very stern language, well, I think Christians who do that essentially function as pagans when they err in this way because they don't have a category for the justice of God, the wrath of God, that sort of thing. Now, the psalm is an address to God. It's to the God who searches man. He knows all things about man, about him, David, of course, being the writer. The faith that is exercised here in our text is one whose object of faith, Yahweh, is interwoven with the self. God discerns the self. God is present with the self. In fact, God is the creator of the self and is the one who ultimately aligns the self with the will of God. So this is a great counseling text for those struggling with identity and purpose and struggling with uh, trying to repent of sin and pursue holiness, that sort of thing. It's a great text to, to do that with um, because of the, the nature of the self and God and how those things are, are brought together. Our pursuit of God, when we do assess it properly, invariably means that God is the one doing the chasing. Um, as Francis Thompson said in his famous poem, we're dealing with the hound of heaven. Sinners pursued by a loving God. That is what we have before us. So in our passage, we learn that God is omniscient. So kids, these are big words that mean something, but God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He is omnipresent, meaning that he is present everywhere. And God is omnipotent, meaning that God is uh, powerfully the creator of all things. He creates all things. The reference point for all things then including the self, including you, the reference point for you in your life is God himself. God is held up in this psalm as the reference point for all of creation, for everything about you and who you are. He's the reference point. Our, our existence as image bearers is utterly and totally comprehended by God. Every, every inch, every cell, every molecule, every breath, everything, all of it, every moment is comprehended by God. All of life is involved with God and owes its origin and worship to Him. So what we find here is a grand display of Yahweh's supremacy over all things, including the wicked, His sovereignty even over the wicked. Uh, I, I often think of ways, if I were a Puritan in the 1700s, 1600s, uh, a Puritan-esque title for this message could be on the vindication of God and creation through the sovereign purposes of God in history. <laughs> uh, they usually come up with a short title and then a massively long title. Or maybe this one, the superiority of knowing and submitting to God over against the inferiority of slandering and resisting God. And I, I mention those to you only to give you a perspective on the passage here. So look at our text here for a second. Psalm 139 contains four sections. 
There are four sections to it. Each of those sections highlights certain aspects and attributes of God, but they're within the context of the worshiper. So it's not an attribute of God that's disconnected, that we can just sort of abstract these things and put them up there in the clouds and study the attributes of God separately from from us. This is something that is brought in the context of the worshiper. The poem begins and it ends with asking God to search and to know him. The very first uh, verse there in verse 1 and the very last verse, uh, specifically verse 23, there's this language of search me, know me. Everything in between is, is, serves that main mission. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. The first section explains God's intimate knowledge of us, God's omniscience. So when we think of the attributes of God, this is highlighted here, God's omniscience. He's the fact that he knows everything. God knows our sitting and our rising. He knows our activity. He even knows our inactivity. He doesn't just know all things immediately, and he does, right? God doesn't have to go searching on Google for information. He doesn't have to go in the universe finding something that exists that he doesn't understand or know. God knows everything immediately, and he does. But his searching here is rather personal. He searches us personally. He knows the sitting down. He knows the rising up. You know, he knows when you, you sit down to, to take a nap or sit down to read a book. He knows when you're rising up. He knows when you're ready to, to make breakfast. Um, he knows what you're thinking all the time, every time. Uh, when you're lying down, when you go to bed at night, when you're walking, um, when you're speaking, he knows it all. And in fact, he knows the entirety of your life inside and out. Everything about you. In this passage, God takes an active role in knowing us in a dynamic, what we can call a dynamic, imminent process. It's not God away from us, it's God with us. He knows us in everything that we do every single day. The verb know, by the way, shows up six times, and once it's in conjunction with the noun knowledge. So David is fixated on this knowledge of God, how he knows him. God knows David, David knows God, that sort of thing. He's the God who comes close to us. He is involved with us when we drink coffee or when we take a nap. He's involved in it all. And the verb know tells us just how deeply God knows. Um, He is the divine judge. He knows and judges our hearts. He knows and judges our ways. He cares deeply about everything that we do. And hardly a verse goes by without mentioning uh, a first or second um, personal uh, first or second person pronoun, um, I, you, me, your, uh, my, all of these pronouns and in, in, in this language of intimacy keeps popping up everywhere. For David to speak of the self, to speak of who he is, is to speak only in the context of God. There's your identity issue. <laughs> to speak of the self is done in the context of God. And frankly, to speak about God in David's mind is done within the context of speaking of the self. God knows when I'm laying down and when I rise up. He knows uh, everything I'm going to do, everything I'm going to say. 
Um, God, in this context, is not an abstraction or a, or a conceptualization. He's not those things. God is my God. He is your God. He is the God who, who knows... I was thinking about this uh, a little bit earlier, but He knows how many hours you have brushed your teeth since you've been young. Have you ever thought about that? I don't, I don't know how... Estimate 10 minutes a day times however many days, you know. Like, he knows that, though. He knows. To the, to the millisecond, he knows those things about you. All of reality bespeaks of him. What the self does, where the self goes, how the self lives, all of it is comprehended by the God who knows all things. So knowledge of God and self cannot be reduced to metaphysical abstraction. We're not just in theory. We're not theorizing here. We're dealing with the God who knows. And they go hand in hand. And this is why Calvin starts off his institutes dealing with this very subject. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And, and that's the foundation for any epistemology. It's the foundation for how we know anything. It starts with, with that. So sitting and laying down and everything in between, God knows it all. His knowledge is immediate. He doesn't go searching for knowledge anywhere. His knowledge is utterly and completely exhaustive, uh, for there is no new knowledge for God to gain. We're talking about the immensity of the triune God. This is, this is uh, glorious to even consider. So beyond our activity, God knows our thoughts. He knows every thought that you've ever had. He knows our ways. In fact, our speech is so important to God, He knows what we are going to say before we say it. Verse 4. So, here's a lesson for us. Concern yourself with words you have yet to say. If you're a person who regrets things that you say, maybe you should stop saying it. The fool gives vent to his spirit, Proverbs says. Maybe concern yourself with the things you have yet to say, and maybe your life will go a little bit better. Now, we are encompassed about by God in verse 5. He is around and over us, and, and we cannot escape his attention. We cannot escape his presence, and we cannot escape his knowledge of us. So to be loved by Christ is to be besieged by Christ in every way, unable to escape him. To have his hand on us, the text speaks of such matters, his hand upon us. It could be for restraint. God's hand could be restraining you helping you, the Holy Spirit holding you back from further sin and debauchery, or it could be for deliverance. His hand of deliverance in Scripture, you know, saves us, delivers us out of, you know, uh, our own self-created pit of despair. All of it, either way, but ultimately it's for your good. It's for your good. So God, God's knowledge of us is deeply personal. He understands and discerns us Verse 2, he searches us out and scrutinizes us. Verse 3, he knows our minds and hearts better than we know ourselves. He encloses us and deals with us as we are. Verse 5, God has a perfect knowledge. And for David in verse 6, it's a bar that's far too high to climb over. When you start stacking up in your mind the beauty and splendor of God's knowledge of you and everything he knows about you, the hairs on your head or lack thereof, he knows, and for David, it's just, I can't climb that high. I can't get into that totally. It's far too high for me. What do I do? And what David knows about God is ultimately, well, it's unfortunately something he doesn't fully know or comprehend. 
I mean, we're dipping our toe into the supremacy and sovereignty of God. We can only dip our toe. We, we don't fully comprehend it. It's overwhelming, he says, essentially. But there is freedom here. There's a freedom to live fruitfully under God's sovereign direction. Um, the Bible teaches what we call compatibilism. Uh, the sovereign predestination of God and the personal, free, and responsible choices of man. I love how John Frame says it. People struggle with that. Does God predestine everything? Yes. But don't I have a will to choose things? Yes. Well, John Frame says God ordains all your free choices. End, end of story. <laughs> um, and that's simply what the Bible teaches. God ordains all of your free choices. And, of course, your will is only going to choose that which is predisposed to choose. And if you're unregenerate, you will choose evil. Um, evil men who are unregenerate do not choose righteousness, not until the Holy Spirit gives them a new heart. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, well, surely the darkness will, will bruise me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark for you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. The second section pertains to God's inescapable presence, his omnipresence. We have here the ubiquity of God's face before all of creation, before all men at all times and all places. God knows us from the heavens and the depths, from the east and the west, all vertical space, all horizontal space. He knows us at darkness and nighttime. He knows us in light and daytime. And the text says he knows those things are the same for him. He doesn't just know from afar. He makes and pursues us. Yahweh sees all things. Think about this, kids, especially ponder this for a second. He sees everything that the seven plus billion people do on earth each and every day. Every single person. He knows what they're doing. He sees it all at once. And there's no, there, there's no like risk of overheating as if he were a computer processing that much data. God knows it all. Every single thing. He could tell you the ounces of water that have been consumed by every human in a 24-hour period. He sees it all. Everywhere God is present, also we need to keep this in mind, everywhere that God is present, all of God is present. God isn't divvied up and, and some, some section of the Father is over there in Asia and some section of the Son's over here in Europe and the Spirit's somewhere down in South America. It's not how that works. Everywhere God is present, and He is present everywhere, all of God is present. He's not present in the pantheistic sense where, you know, all of creation and everything is God, and I'm God, and the shirt you're wearing is God. Not, not that sort of foolishness. That's a pagan view of the world. Now think about those things. Be because of this overwhelming thought, David considers fleeing for just a moment. But where could he possibly go? Remember Jonah tried to run away from God? He went to Tarshish, the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Where did he end up? Nineveh. Because when God tells you to go somewhere, you're going to go. <laughs> Where could, where could Jonah run and escape God? It's impossible. It could never happen. The scrutiny of God is too wondrous to fully grasp, and as a result, fear might set in because of God's holiness. That's where David is in verse 6. So he considers, 
running. Well, where am I going to run? Now, guilt might drive you or someone else to, to run from God. Maybe you've sinned egregiously and guilt has set in and you want to run away, but you could also run away. There could be the recognition that nothing escapes the eyes of God, and so we recoil at that thought. Like, he knows my thoughts, even the terrible thoughts I had this week. Yeah, he knows them. But where, David says, can we go where God is not already there? He's in heaven. He's in Sheol. But if we run, wouldn't we expect to be chastened and chastised by God? Well, not in verse 10. By the way, verse 10 is is a very, very, very important verse to have in front of you. God's hand guides us and he will hold us fast. Even your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. What a promise. What a promise. I wonder if Jesus had that verse in mind, by the way, when he talked about nobody being able to escape, get, get out, of, out of the Father's hand. But his grace illustrates the divine pursuit of his elect. God moves his hand. Love moves the hand of God. Christ, the God-man, he went to Sheol, but death could not hold him. Rather, he notified the place of the dead that it was now time for resurrection glory. Look at verse 13. We have a third section. We're talking about God's foreknowledge, his predestinating, his foreordination, his omnipotence, his power. Consider this thought now. For you formed my inward parts, You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. And in your book, all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God is omnipotent. He isn't just all-powerful. He's a master craftsman. He's a skilled investor. He sees the unseen. He enters into the inaccessible and authors all things, including the very being of man. He, in this text, David, sees God as a skilled weaver. And the product of God's weaving and intricately designed product here is is us, is is David. It's the people of God, um, those even made in the image of God who aren't necessarily believers and they're outside the covenant. From, From the very beginning of his life, God has been at work in him. From the very beginning of your life, God has been at work in you. I mean, it's amazing. Um having three kids and, and, you know, being there and and seeing their birth and you just, it's awe-striking. I I don't know how else to say it. It's incredible to see what God does in the womb of a mother to shape someone who ends up being six foot five tall. (laughs) How does that happen? You know, Even from the beginning, God was at work in the smallest of ways. In the womb, God formed our inward parts. That word is actually literally the kidneys. Um, 
It's a, a figurative way of speaking about the heart, the center of our being, the will, the mind, the affections, everything. God was, was there. I mean, he wasn't just putting the aortic valve in a certain place and, and making sure that the large and small intestine functioned this way. Um, he wanted to make sure the liver did its job. Uh, it's it's mind-numbing to think about how something, how all of us started so very, 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 very small. The text says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, more literally in the Hebrew, we are awesomely wonderful. We are awesome, awesomely wonderful in terms of, of God's creation of man. The creation of a, of, of a child in the womb was a miracle that only God could conceive of in, in what we call an captically remarkable process of weaving together the diversity of physical traits um, your body is an incaptive wonder. wonder. It's, it's mind-blowing, the body, if you ever take the time to study even the cell and how the cell functions and how your body is, is very electrical-driven. Uh, it, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. But he weaves together the, the, the physical and the spiritual components, and you think about where does the physical meet the spiritual? Where does the, the thing that makes you, the, what we call the soul, the heart, the center of you, where is that in your body? Surgeons can't find it. You know, where you, you have neurons that are firing and they want to reduce you to chemical goo that's evolved over years, but don't let them. You're made in the image of God, so you, are, you, are, are, you have the breath of, of God in you, and that weaving together is, is awesomely wonderful, David says. So, in verse 15, God knows us spatially, but he also knows us temporally. Verse 16, this phrase, unshaped substance, is literally my embryo. He knew our unshaped substance, the embryo. God knows the millions of frozen children in the IVF holocaust. He knows them all. He's woven them together. He, he, he knows it. Uh, the depths of the earth is a, is a phrase for the womb. So it's like we're in the depths of the earth in the darkness. He knows us. From the moment of conception onward, God plans our beginning Abolitionists, we like to talk about fertilization, too. The moment of fertilization onward. God plans our beginning and our end. In fact, before days ever even existed as a thing, our days were numbered. Consider this. God knows us as easily as he does light and darkness, and he knows both equally. And of course he knows that he, he created it. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. From, from the darkness of the womb, where all of us were knitted together at some point, uh, to the light of the birth canal and entering into this, this new light, that whole process, David says, God knows. He just knows it intimately. God's predestinating knowledge of us, coupled with his, his presence, is exemplified in the womb of our mothers. God did it all. And David, in verse 17 and 18, just marches forward with a doxology of praise because what else are you going to do when you consider the magnitude of such things? Overwhelmed by God's intimate presence and knowledge of him, the psalmist finds said presence and knowledge to be utterly mind-blowing. David is just perplexed. It's almost beyond words to consider such things. Yahweh's thoughts are precious, he says in verse 17. They're precious, meaning they are weighty and they are vast. They are too many to count. The thoughts of God... How many thoughts are required to know even a fraction of what I've already said he knows? 
The full nature of God is utterly incomprehensible. David pondered his own thoughts about God, thinking about all these things. He knows me. He's with me. He's all-powerful. He knew me from the very beginning, and he's just layering this stuff, and he comes to the end of himself and says, this is, this is out of control. My thoughts about God are, are making me almost speechless. But then he stops and says, well, but they are inconceivable apart from God's knowledge and thoughts of him. The thoughts that God has about you every single day. God thinks about you. He knows you. He searches you. Amazing. And then we have this final section that doesn't seem to belong, but it's here for a reason. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of bloodshed, depart from me, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do, not, do I not revile those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any heart, heart, hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This final section speaks of God's sovereign justice, God's sovereign judgment. The main thrust here is God's relationship to the writer, to David, and it's also the relationship of God to the wicked. And this hatred that David has is utmost as in perfect and complete. And the text really isn't that difficult. Um, <laughs> you know, pietistic evangelicals who, who would much rather uh, avoid such things struggle with a text like this, but it's very basic. David's saying that standing with God over against the wicked is what matters to him most. Standing with God, even if you're the only person on the earth to do so, is what matters more than anything else. Stand with, with God. And given God's relationship to creation and covenant, it's only fitting for God to destroy the wicked who hate both creation and, and covenant. God is, is just, and therefore he does not idly stand by while sinners flagrantly malign his law order. And David describes these evildoers as bloodthirsty. And if you've ever been yelled at by a death score at an abortion clinic, <laughs> that's the word to use, bloodthirsty. And that means that they have murderous intent in their hearts toward the people of God. And so David cries out to God and asks God to squash their attempts. They speak slanderously against God and they speak irreverently of God. They malign the Lord of glory and this is inconceivable. The one who knows all and given what we just saw beforehand, how could one possibly malign the king, king of glory? How could someone possibly malign King Yahweh, when he knows all things, when he exists in all places, this is an incredible thought for David. Now, to see oneself clearly, we must see God clearly, which is what makes the problem of evil unconscionable. This isn't David being flippant toward evildoers, um, besmirching them because he just doesn't like them. Rather, it is David expressing a holy zeal for God and the breadth and depth of God's presence in the world. David essentially says, don't they know? Don't they know? When, when combating evil, we must remember that we do not play by their rules, we play by God's rules. Uh, Calvin suggests that David's concern is advancing godliness and the fear 
of God's name, which can happen if God takes vengeance upon the wicked. So put yourself in David's shoes, having just dipped his toe into this massive theological excursus here. What does he conclude? Well, he wants nothing to do with the wicked. He wants nothing to do with their false religion. God's God's presence and holiness and power is too great for any amount of wickedness to be tolerated in the world. That's where that comes from. This isn't David with just an agenda. This is consider the magnitude of who God is and then consider the damage that is done by the wicked. That's David's point here. And note, I want to say this too, because this is, we need to blow this thing up. There is no hint of love the sinner and hate the sin. I don't have time to go too far into this, but there's no hint, there's no hint of that. This is, a, this is a, a dualistic Greek metaphysic that's brought into Christianity, and it should not be there. Uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. You've probably heard it. Maybe you've said it. Just gently rebuke you here. Don't, don't say those things. Um, you cannot separate your intentions from your actions. Uh, you can't separate your, your intentions and your actions or, or your character and your actions. You know, you sin against someone and they confront you and you're like, yeah, you're right, that's just unlike me. No, 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 no. That's like you because sin is crouching. <laughs> Don't blame it and, and act like you didn't do it from a heart that was jealous or envious or covetousness, right? Full of covetousness. You sinned because you wanted to sin and you carried it out. How many times have you heard about a mass casualty event, any, any sort of thing, and they say, well, well, you know, he was a good kid. I don't, I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't know why he did that. He seemed great. He sent his grandma a birthday card, right? And that is like inconceivable for them to think that the man had evil in his heart and actually followed through with it. But that's not true, none of that. Actions are always downstream from the disposition of our hearts. So evil, evil hearts beget evil intentions, which beget evil actions, and that's why we need regeneration. In this humanistic scheme, sin is explained away as some sort of abstract principle. How many, how many uh, uh, Hollywood stars have you heard apologize? You know, they sent a tweet out, and the world lost its mind, and they're like, I'm really sorry, that goes against my own code of conduct. I, I, I want to apologize because my, that's not, those are not my standards, and... and like, like it's about them. They make that about them yet again. It's the same thing. Sin is not an abstract principle that went against your standards. It went against God's standards. And, and in this context, responsibility is subsequently tossed aside. You know, we don't, we don't see ourselves as having the responsibility to seek restitution for the damage done for our sin. We just say, well, it goes against my, my code, and therefore um, I will go put myself in timeout. And thus, what happens in this scheme, man is vindicated in his own eyes. But David wants nothing of that. The last two verses, David wants God, in light of all of this, wants God to search him because surrendering to God's all-consuming, inescapable presence is the only way out. Those who hate me love death, Proverbs says. The, the consistent, unregenerate end is death. That's the only way out. But David says, actually, there's another way out of God's presence, and that's to go into God's presence. That's the way out. 
Rather than escaping, David essentially gives up here at the end. Rather than running roughshod over God like the wicked, the worshiper submits to the God who is there and is everywhere. God's holiness and magnificence is too great for any amount of evil to be in him. So David asks again to be searched out again. Think of it. This is this psalm. Ready? God is amazing. There's a lot of wickedness in the world. God, make sure that wickedness is not in me. That's it. That's the psalm. God, here's the thing. God has not only the ability, but the authority to rifle through your life in order to deal with any idol, any anxiety, any wrong thinking, any, anything that deviates from him. And indeed, we should welcome such seemingly drastic measures. He has the authority, not just the ability, but the authority to rifle through. That Everybody has a drunk, junk drawer at home, right? Just He has the authority to do it, and he will do it, and he will rifle through your heart and make sure there's no, any deviation from holiness. And instead of us, you know, standing by, Jesus, don't clean out the junk drawer. I need those things. You say, go ahead, burn it down. That's holiness. The consuming fire of God, just burn it down. Because there may be an idol that I don't even know that's in there, but search me, God. Know me. Eradicate it. That should be our posture. David wants God to search him, to know his heart, to try and know his thoughts, to see if there's anything hurtful or offensive in him, and all so that David can be led in the ancient holy paths avoiding the wickedness that encumbers the evildoer. There's no self-righteousness here. There's no, there's no uh, great confession of guilt like Psalm 51. Nor is, nor is there an insistence that he has his life completely together. Rather, David knows God. David is known by God, and he wants to make sure that that's always the case. So how shall we then live as we think about a few more things? Consider your own life for just a moment. <clears throat> How would your life change if you thought deeply about these things, these attributes of God? How would your life change if you really remembered that God knows your thoughts and he knows every single muttering that comes out of your mouth? How would certain patterns of behavior in your life change? Certain foolishness or, or, or sins, how would they change if you beheld the glory of God in all these things? What would your life look like if you truly grasped God's omni-everything? Would you be so quick to run to sin? Would you be so quick to ask God to root around in your heart in order to trash all the idols? What would change if you knew that God knows you this intimately? To truly know God, you must first consider how well He knows you you. We are dealing with, as one author said, the already God. He already knows the words that we're going to say before we say them, verse 4. Anywhere we try to go, he's already there, verse 8. Our very existence is predicated on him knitting us together in our mother's womb, already knowing us long before we could even think and surmise and deduce anything else. God is already there. And what we see here in this text are two basic options. First, you surrender to God and then you find life. Or second, you attempt to find life while being at enmity with God, refusing to surrender, and thus you become an enemy. Jesus told us as much, didn't he? 
Matthew 10.39 says this, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If you go on living your life on your terms, attempting to find life outside of the life giver, you will lose it. Jesus is, David's saying the same thing Jesus said a thousand years later. If you go forth losing your life, that is laying it all before God for the sake of Christ's work in the world, then you will find it. Now, the world is no doubt complicated, but it's only complicated when we ignore the proximity of the Creator God and the giving of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we suppress the gifts we've been given by the Holy Spirit, thanks to the Gospel, then we've lost. God is the reference point for the entirety of your life. Every decision, every thought, every word, everything has a referential point of intersection with God. And either we acknowledge this and we submit to Him, which is a gracious option thanks to the work of the Gospel, the work of Christ, or we choose to be the reference point ourselves, like the evildoers God, David, you know, condemns here, and then we beguile ourselves into further and more, more sin. We, we think we're doing the right thing, but we're not. Those are the options. And instead of this, we, like David, we must insist on the holiness of God, the supremacy of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And look, the main thrust of this passage is the confession that God fills the earth with his glory. Every nook and cranny of this universe belongs to him. As Christians who, who believe the Bible, we confess that God is sovereign. Sovereignty, I love Abraham Kuyper's definition, sovereignty is the authority that, of God that has the right, the duty, and the power to break and avenge all resistance to his will. That's Kuyper's definition. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is the authority of God. To, he has the, 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 the right, the duty, and the power to break and avenge all resistance to his will. How many have heard, you've heard the definition, uh, the famous quote from, from Kuyper when they were dedicating the Free, free uh, University of Amsterdam? He uh, talks about there's the whole domain of human ex existence. There's no place where Christ doesn't cry over it, mine. You've heard of that phrase. Most people don't realize what he said before that. Here's what he said. Man, in his antithesis, is a fallen sinner or self-developing natural creature, returns again as the subject that thinks or the object that prompts thought in every department, in every discipline, and with every investigator. Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Powerful, powerful from Kuiper, what he was getting at is that the antithesis that runs through history can be to some degree summarized as the totality of, of all things being underneath the rule of Christ. Everything, not just the church, everything under the rule of Christ, that's the Christian position, or the opposite humanistic impulse which tries to isolate man from Christ's rule. That is the antithesis. Christians confessing the totality of Christ's rulership and the world trying to isolate itself from Christ's rulership. That's our current predicament in our nation and all Western civilization. That's the antithesis. And David only knows the former. He only knows that God is supreme over every little thing, including 
that embryo in the womb. Now, in a life of faith where the worshiper is united to God by grace and covenant, there is no room for, there's no room in the world for wickedness and evil. If God is searching out the hearts of men, then the only logical conclusion is that those whose lives are marked by such evil must either be brought to repentance so they can deal with God in terms of grace, or they are brought to justice so they can deal with God in judgment. And either way, they must deal and they will deal with our God. These enemies are God's enemies. And frankly, it is entirely appropriate for us to feel this way towards evildoers. And we should not shy away from it. I know nice Christianity doesn't like to think in these terms. But there are some very, very wicked men who are doing very, very wicked things. And we need to be able to say, that is wicked, you are an evildoer, God kill them. Or bring them to justice bring them to repentance. Either way, God destroy them because they hate you. They hate your holiness. Deal with them. And of course, we want to graciously preach to them, to poke and prod at their aberrant worldview, the one that they're suppressing, the truth and unrighteousness. However, aligning ourselves with God is always the priority. And all of this political, you know, economic upheaval, all the nonsense we're swimming in every day after day, in, in all of it, our job is to align ourselves with God. That is the priority. And any deviation from Christ and his rule must be, be hated, it must be addressed, and it must be done without compromise. And this does not exclu- exclude praying for our enemies as Christ told us to do. It simply means that we, along with God, must have a zero-tolerance policy toward evil, starting in our hearts, the hearts of others. That's why it's a loving thing to confront your brother or sister in Christ if they've sinned. We, don't, we have zero-tolerance policy because God is holy. And David, he sees the wickedness. He wants no part of it, which is why he, in, the, in the very end, he asks God to remove any sort of deviation from God's holiness, um, from his intimate knowledge and presence of him. And we want, in our pursuit of holiness, to be searched and known by God. We want the enemies of God to be searched and known as well. And when God searches and he knows because he's the supreme one, evil will be judged in your heart and in the lives of others. And for the Christian, we know our sins are atoned for in the work of Christ and the gospel. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are known by Christ. His substitutionary atonement has washed us clean. His victorious resurrection has granted us justification. His glorious ascension to the throne has restored us as priests and kings. And because of this, we too must ask God to search us and to cleanse us and to know us all the time. We must hate evil and the evildoers who perpetuate it with a perfect hatred, no less. One which can only come about through God's vantage point. Like, if I had to sum this up in one line, David's point here, Psalm 139, look at everything through God's lens. Your life, the life of others, the world, the culture, everything. Look at your own heart through the lens of Christ. We must see everything through God's vantage point, and this includes any evil that lurks around. And this is also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, this is why we must be abolitionists. Mothers and fathers who send their kids to the grave are bloodthirsty evildoers. They are not victims, and we cannot separate their actions from the murder in their hearts. 
And as it turns out, this passage is the perfect illustration of abolitionism and how we should respond to the abortion holocaust. We must hate the sin and the evildoer with a perfect hatred. The hatred you conjure up, the hatred that God conjures up in you, is righteous because it pertains to God. David is not flippant and dismissive. I just don't like them. They're fools. Look at how they dress. It's none of that. It's God is holy. That is wicked. This is to be hated. And all of it from God's vantage point. And yes, we pray for them. We preach to them. We try to rescue children from, the, from, from being carried away to, to destruction. And we ask God to deal with them either in repentance or judgment. But that's the abolitionist position. God knows, so bring justice. Lord Jesus, our protector. That is the cry of the church when rampant wickedness is going on in any society. And note the final line. I'm going to end here. The last line in your text. Verse 24, and lead me in the everlasting way. The everlasting way is the way of God's kingdom, which always ends in blessedness, glory, and completeness. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. Remember Psalm 1? They are doomed to fail in history because the Lord Jesus Christ is conquering his enemies, but we have to have the wisdom and the trust in the one who leads us in the everlasting way. We must cultivate a life marked by a robust, high-octane faith, an unshakable faith in the living God who knows it all. Friends, he knows you. Let's pray. Father, the, the thoughts that David expounds upon in this text is really something. <laughs> it is really, really quite perplexing. And I just pray that your spirit would see to it that we would yield to the kingdom of Christ in every area of our lives. Lord, I pray if there are things that we're hanging on to that we shouldn't be, that you would release us from that bondage. I pray that your spirit would search us out and know us Lord, we, just like what happened with the sin of Achan and, and keeping back some of the plunder for himself and bringing judgment upon Israel, I pray that we as Christians laboring together for Christ's kingdom in this little corner of the garden world would not hold on to little things and, and thus wreak havoc upon us. Lord, we pray for your church, the bride of Christ the bride that you have chosen, that you have known. We hear your voice. We are your sheep, the sheep of your glorious green pasture. God, would you give us repentance, give us faith, and would you ignite in us a passion for your glory and your holiness. In Christ's name I pray, amen.